0: Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, the increasingly inaccurately titled Weekly Squeak, but I'm going to keep that because I like the Hitchhiker's reference. Hitchhiker's fans will know what I'm talking about. Um, I have a co-host again. In fact, maybe we should just say from now on you are a host instead of keep saying you're a guest co-host.
1: I am um, slightly raised in, in the esteem of the programme. Yeah, only slightly. Just I can chill as breath. Oh, very slightly then. Yes. Yeah, Hi everyone, my name's Kate and I am the... Person who puts up with Chris, <laughs> and I'm also a tech journalist, so I'm here talking a little bit about some of the things that I encounter in my week.
0: And welcome to the echo chamber. Um, the the usual recording studio, the bedroom, is currently in a bit of a state of flux, and I haven't had a chance to reset up a microphone, so just going to have to put up with this huge echoey lounge room and the huge ceilings. I'm sure it adds to the atmosphere. Or you could just pretend we're in a spaceship or something. Yeah. We're broadcasting from uh, the Juno mission to Jupiter, maybe.
1: Or a hot air balloon.
0: I don't think that echoes. Mm.
1: The sound of the washing machine in the background. It's a bit like the hot air that you see. You're really
0: destroying the fourth wall here, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah, OK. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about a few things. We're going to talk about what we've been up to. We're going to talk about some other bigger themes. We've got a, quite a bit to cover. It's been a little while. Uh, so let's start with politics. There's been two events in our lives, uh, political events, that we want to discuss One momentous one, one you probably didn't even know was happening. The momentous one was, of course, the Australian election. (laughs) No, unfortunately not. That was the one you probably didn't even know was happening. Let's start with Brexit. So we ended the show talking about my feelings on that topic. And now, of course, we have an outcome. And it wasn't necessarily the outcome that many were expecting or indeed that personally I, we, would have wanted and many people like us. But it happened, Uh, it's a very small margin, and there's lots of things around that. Like I heard some some friends in London who said they couldn't actually get to vote after work and things like that. So yet again, that was a a negative against younger working people who couldn't actually get to vote. And we've seen, of course, modern democracies outpouring through a petition, which... uh, (laughs) got four million um signatures for a second referendum but um that's not even 10 percent of the population so you know to be fair i don't think it should have been um i suppose one of the crazy things about the whole process was the (laughs) the ridiculous things of people googling what happens if britain leaves the eu on the night of the uh, referendum result and not even really understanding what they just voted for which The fucked-upness and the disillusionment of British politics is a whole other discussion, but um, I think it highlights it even more. Um, For me, I suppose it's just that representative of not feeling particularly British anymore. Um, And, I mean, there's been lots of rumours of the the fact that the government haven't even officially enacted the referendum yet. Uh, the EU is still waiting. But I sort of get the feeling that, you know, that's a decision that was made. You have to... You made your bed, you have to lie in it. I also get the feeling that the EU is kind of pissed off with the UK and doesn't want to give them any leeway. Because even when they were a member of the union, or still are, of course, in the next couple of years anyway, they've never exactly been the most um, play fair member anyway. And I think it's just the last in a long line of... Annoyances for the European Union, so we'll see. But uh, it's interesting, and it? the fallout from it was ridiculous. Like, all the, the leaders who basically just were using it to jockey position, and now they've all quit and left, I don't think even they expected to win, you know?
1: Mm, I don't add a point of clarity, though. Um, my understanding is for anything to be enacted, it requires an Act of Parliament. Yeah, it did not happen Article though. 50, which yeah. may take quite a lot of time, because my understanding is that the um, party that won well, the people that won, shall I say, actually didn't have a plan of what they were going to do after the decision was made. So it could be anyone's guess what they're actually going to do, and it's a little bit harder because my understanding, again, is that the people actually running the campaign have actually resigned. So yep. I'm not sure that. Makes sense.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we shall see, and there's been all sorts of... We now will have new party leaders and all sorts of things, and to be perfectly honest with you, I got offered a job in the UK about six weeks ago that I thought long and hard about taking, and I'm very glad I didn't now. Mm. On the silver lining, I managed to gain about £1,000 uh, in a student loan payment. So, silver lining in every cloud, I suppose.
1: You mean because of the drop in the value of the pound? Because of count. the drop in
0: the value of the pound. I paid some back and gained about £1,000.
1: Wow, so that very was a silver
0: lining. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. And then we have other politics. We have the Australian election, which is... Only just resolved, I think. Is it now officially resolved?
1: Yeah, yes and no. As of today, um, maybe we should explain a little bit. For well,
0: our... also a, a bit of context. Personally, is that it was the first one I could vote in, which why it was exciting for me. Maybe as one of about uh, a few thousand people who actually understand the Australian uh, system, maybe you'd like to explain it, Kate.
1: Yeah, I mean, in simple terms, it's a um, two-house system. There's the lower house, which is the, the House of Representatives. And then the upper house, called the Senate, which, which is, is when... actually elected, yeah. and it's where the basically the legislation decided upon or discussed in the lower house gets voted upon and um, and you know passed or otherwise. And unlike pretty much every other country by one or two, voting in Australia is compulsory.
0: I think it's the only Western democracy. Um, maybe let's because I've always wanted this. Let's actually. Um... Let's use the power of Google. Let's find this out.
1: And just to clarify that, what that means is that if you if you don't vote on the day um, or vote previously, you are required to account for why you were unable to vote. For example, if you were ill, of course, or something like that. And it's worth adding to that that um, this election has been quite a bit of controversy. I was reading today that a number of people in hospital have complained they were unable to vote. And I've worked previously as a returning officer working in hospitals, which means i basically helped people vote. Um, And you literally do take a ballot box and the papers to people's beds and help them vote.
0: So just coming back to the compulsory voting. So one thing I've often always said is that Australia is one of the only uh, Western democracies with compulsory voting. That actually isn't true. Um, Here's a list. Argentina. Argentina and their democracy is in bit in debate right now. Uh, Australia, Belgium, actually. Mm. Uh, Bolivia, again. Brazil, again. Some of these are... Uh... So let's have a look at some others. Greece. I was just in Greece, which we'll come to in a minute. And I'm not sure how many Greek people would agree their system is mm-hmm. democratic. Luxembourg. Um... Yeah. Actually, if you look at this list, there's uh, if you Google this, there's uh, quite a good list of these. The vast majority are not necessarily systems that you would consider be... Uh, as democratic as they could be, shall we say. But, yeah, Australia, Belgium... I'm sure I saw another one Luxembourg? there. Luxembourg? Luxembourg, yeah. They're probably three countries where you would consider the system is reasonably reasonably democratic. Um, but Australia is probably the biggest Western democracy. Yeah, anyway. that's, that's correct. It's I mean, compulsory.
1: I, I guess Australians... Most Australians have a different view of compulsory voting to what you might think. People from the outside might go, well, why do you have to vote? Why can't you choose if you're an anarchist and you don't like any of them and you don't want to vote for anyone? Um, Whereas I think most people in Australia see voting as a bit of a privilege. We are taught quite a lot at school about the voting system, about some of the initial inequalities in voting, for example, the dates when Australians and also Indigenous Australians were made able to vote. And we're also quite reminded of our countries closer to us, like Timor-Leste in Indonesia, or next to it, that be, part of Indonesia that became Timor-Leste, where people would travel for days um, under armed guard for their first to cast their first vote to make an independent country, and then of course in Australia we have a lot of refugees from countries where voting was actually quite a risky um, past one or a risky um, risky thing to do, I guess to put it simply. Um, but yeah, I mean I guess my experience of voting is for the last two weeks. Just prior to the election, I was working at the Australian Embassy.
0: So, maybe just at at that juncture, it would be good to explain because uh, the Australian system is a little unusual. Um, Explain how it works. How do you actually vote?
1: Oh, okay. Um, In regard to the papers? Yes. Okay. You have to fill out two pieces of paper. There is a a piece of paper for the lower house, which is the House of Representatives, and it it has a list of candidates and their parties. And you number them with the one being your first choice. This is a short list, correct? Yeah. Normally a short list, yes. Yeah. And then you have this thing called the Senate paper. Now the Senate paper is very large. Um, I'm about five foot three, and the Sydney one, sorry, the New South Wales one, is taller than me if you actually put it out in, in its actual length. And basically, it it numbers along the top of the top of the page. Um, the parties, so you can choose to vote for just a party if you wish, and you have to number a minimum of six which of is called voting above the line, and Correct. there is actually a line. There is literally a dark line, and then below that is all the candidates from each party, including, of course, a separate area for the independents, of which there are often very many. And you can alternatively vote below the line, which means you can um, number a minimum of twelve of those people below the line of your preference, one, again, being your first choice. And if you are that way inclined, you can certainly number all of them. So that may be up to 150 people. So it could be a bit of a
0: and lengthy of course, this, this ends up meaning you can get quite a diverse um, parliament, but uh, not always because then you have preferencing, which I have never completely understood. I don't know if you can give a very brief summary of quite what it means.
1: Well, it basically means that um, your are Lesser parties or less likely to get seat parties will do preference deals with the bigger parties. So, for example, if we don't get um, voted in, we will give our vote to you. Hmm. So it basically... Trickle- it's a triple down effect, as you can imagine. you it can that. end up in
0: results you didn't necessarily expect, if you're not careful, as a voter.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it means traditionally the last couple of elections, which I think has been the case in a lot of other countries as well, that the Senate, as in the Upper House, has a... You know, it has two sort of main parties, which are, of course, Labour and Liberal. Liberal. And Liberal is
0: not Liberal as in most countries. Liberal is actually the Conservative Party. That's right. Just just to add to the confusion. The
1: Conservative Party. It's a big L-Liberal. And Labour
0: is spelt American way, just to make it even more confusing.
1: That's right. (laughs) And basically it means that you have them and then you have people that sort of sit in the middle, figuratively. um, Either from a minor party, like the Greens, or perhaps the Democrats, and then you have the independents, of course, and people that are in a minor party that you may have not heard of. It may be something like the Motoring Enthusiast Party.
0: Which there is one.
1: Or um, <laughs> the... Science Party. Science Party. Which, I, yeah,
0: a friend of mine was actually running, but to be honest with you, I have absolutely no idea what their policies are. I assume there's something to do with science, but they were actually the science and bike riding parties.
1: So. <laughs> well, a bit was on that. They were aiming to build a tech hub between um, Canberra and Sydney. Okay
0: that could be accessed by bicycle. I suppose this is one of the negatives, in inverted commas, of having so many kind of options, is that you actually need to do quite a lot of research. You do. And, I mean, as a first-time voter, firstly, I was uh, washed up in the whole stuff with Brexit because, to be blunt, us living here in Germany it affected me far more, so it was something I was paying far more attention to. Of course. Up until about a week before the Australian election, I hadn't even paid any attention to it. And it's not in any international media. It's mentioned... And that's about it. Like, it's not like American elections or Mm. even other countries. No one pays any attention to it outside of Australia. That's true. And that's actually something, uh, when you're in the country, it feels like the biggest thing ever. And you Mm. suddenly realise, coming back out again, that no one cares outside of Australia. Apart from maybe some of the surrounding countries. I don't know. But it was not mentioned in the news once here. It was on, like, the Monocle once or twice because they have a bit more of a global sort Mm. of... uh, Um, global remit, but it isn't mentioned very much. So I was quite excited about the election, as it was my first, and once all the sort of Brexit uh, stuff had finished, I could finally think about it, and I was looking forward to it. I went down to the embassy to do my first vote, Um, and I was a little confused because there's a lot of parties on that paper, and I must admit I hadn't done as much research as maybe I should have, and there's probably a few I voted for that maybe I shouldn't have because they have some misleading names. But uh, whether that had any effect, I'm not really sure, because what ended up happening, Kate?
1: Yeah, it's been a funny one. I mean, most people vote on election day, which is always a Saturday, um, as opposed to people who vote early, whether they vote um, by postal vote, they go into a a pre-polling place early, or they're overseas and they vote that way, as I was working at. Um, And what actually happens traditionally is you go to a local school or a council building or some such, there's always a locally... Um, fundraising sausage sizzle or a cake stall.
0: Which it seems, as far as I can tell, some people take more seriously than the actual election.
1: There are actually websites which will rate the sausage sizzles across the country. And I know at the Australian Australian Embassy in Berlin, we did try to have a sausage sizzle, but there was a bit of red tape to, um, to get through, being an embassy and being a secure building and all that sort of stuff. And, yeah, people go and vote and then what happens after the, um, the ballots close at, I think it's 6pm from memory, um, in Australia, then all the people working at the um, elections count the votes. That is, in person, they literally count the bits of paper and the numbers on the paper.
0: And we've already talked about some of the problems with the British system, um, almost not being fair enough and not representing people's opinions enough. Possibly one of the problems of the Australian system is the complete opposite which means that you often end up with, and it's happened not for the first time in the past 10 years, what ends up happening? and What happened in this case?
1: Well, in this case, it was very close between the two major parties um, in regard to winning, I guess, the marginal seats. And the, um, all the people that were you know, calling the election and the AEC, the Electoral Commission, was unable to make a decision on who won for, what's it been, 11 days, I think?
0: No, it was about a week. I about think, a week, yeah.
1: okay, it's been about a week. And I believe overnight, given where in Germany it's been um revealed that the Liberal Party has returned to office oh. and um the Senate will be a little bit unclearer until that's finished, the counting is finished. But, you know, it's been perhaps a surprising result for for some people. Um
0: I don't think so. I mean it was always a fairly uninspiring election anyway because basically the current Liberal leader was just trying to increase his margins so he could get through some controversial policy. It was a gamble that they felt was safe but wasn't. Um, I mean, they've achieved what they wanted to achieve but probably not the result they wanted. Mm. Uh, I mean, to be honest with you, it's going to be harder for them now to enact any policies, which is probably a good thing because some of the policies they wanted to put in are not great. Um... I think people were expecting some bigger changes. But as we know, generally generally uh, staying the same usually ends up winning in these sorts of situations.
1: Does it? <laughs>
0: yeah. We'll look at the Scottish referendum and things like that. Usually, if it's a very thin difference, often it's down on the side of, bear the devil, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you forget that most people would don't necessarily care too much about uh, big sweeping policies and are just thinking about the day-to-day and personal effect of politics or non-effect of politics, and that often means that status quo is is is, is, is fine. Yeah.
1: Mm, I think we'll have to agree to disagree on that one. Really? Yeah.
0: And this is a whole separate discussion, but most it people is. do not vote on party lines.
1: No, no, I agree with that.
0: People vote on what's affecting them.
1: But I don't think most people just accept the status quo. Uh,
0: I think they do. Or they accept someone who's going to fix problems for them. And one of the issues with Australian politics over the past few years is there are, there's not really any big issues to fix. Mm, um, climate
1: change? I, yes, yes, OK. People in detention. But
0: this is... This, these are not... these are okay. Medicare? All right, hang on a minute. Hang on, hang on, hang on. OK. OK, right. Um, these are big issues. I'm not saying they're not big issues, but they're not big issues that most people care about, to be blunt. Um, they don't affect them personally. This has always been, this is going off on a sidetrack, this has always been the big issue with climate change is people can't really understand how it affects them. Yeah, that's um, a big one. Immigration and asylum policy is something that Australia especially gets incredibly hit up about for no particular reason. Um, and that is an issue that has changed politics. But to be blunt, both the main parties have almost the same policy anyway on that. Yeah, that's true. In fact, people forget that it was the Labor government that introduced a lot of the very harsh
1: yeah. policies right now, particularly the offshore detention. And the decisions. Liberal government
0: just enhanced them. That's but, right. Um, there's actually very few parties that would change that in Australia. Um, so that's actually it's almost it's not a non-issue, but it's almost a non-issue in terms of the parties, unfortunately. Um, and in Medicare and things like that, I mean, this is this is these are the, this is you're right. These are the issues where people are like, this person promised that, that person promised that, and actually the party is irrelevant. Um, and this is kind of what I'm saying. It's basically just whatever the the personality is promising, and this is how most people vote on on an issue, not on parties. Which is fine, which is fine, but it, it can mean that things are sometimes unpredictable. Um, just because a Labour government traditionally does X doesn't mean people will vote for that Labour government. It depends what they're saying at the time. Maybe. I don't know.
1: Hmm. It's an interesting perspective. I mean,
0: I think it's and worth... having having the compulsory voting and the proportional system does does make this dynamic a bit different in Australia.
1: Yeah, it? I think it's also worth noting that we have had an increase in, you know, some of the swings to to some of the lesser parties, for example the Greens percentage wise. Um, but also, for example, in Queensland, the yeah. infamous One Nation, um, fronted by Pauline Hanson... Maybe
0: you need to explain why infamous, because it's pretty infamous to Australians. So. OK.
1: In Queensland, there's a particular... Well, they're actually a national political party, to be exact, but um, there is a political party called One Nation, which was founded by... I don't know if I should say she's, it, it was founded by her, but because I think there's some people behind her she was a little bit more of a mouthpiece. But it was founded traditionally by a um, red-haired woman who um, is...
0: You make it sound like that's some kind of leg- like some kind of myth founded by a red headed woman. <laughs> well, OK. But to
1: be fair, her hair colour has absolutely nothing to do with it, let's be honest. Um, OK. It was founded by someone who felt that um, there was a significant disconnect in traditional politics, particularly in, in regard to the composition of who lives in Australia... And her name is Pauline Hanson, I should add that. And she felt that Australia was being taken over by Asians, particularly when it came to workplaces and university places. So therefore her mission was to make sure that there was a reduction in immigration. Bringing all their
0: money and educated people here. How dare they?
1: Yeah, bringing their money into Australia's second biggest export education. How dare they all be
0: really good students and spend a lot of money in the system? Um, How dare they? How dare they have nice restaurants with good food?
1: But what's actually happened in the last election is that um, three seats have gone to the One Nation Party, I believe. Three seats? I believe so. In the um, Senate, I would have to confirm that, but that's been predicted. There would be three seats. Um, And the problem with that is also just... You, you have a front person, which is Pauline Hanson, who has some rather interesting views. For example, um, and she's the kind of person that if you hear her speak, you just feel like she should walk around with a shovel because she constantly digs herself in these holes. Is she a bit
0: a bit of a um, a bit of a um, Sarah Palin, yeah. Maybe.
1: She's rather, for example, she said last week. I mean, they, she was reminded in an interview about how she'd said that, you know. Hang on, you're talking about Muslims now, Muslims taking over Australia and Australia becoming a um, Sharia law in parts and how that is really bad. Um, And she was said, people actually said to her, Hang on, didn't you say last time it was um, Asians? And she said, Well, yes, you know, but Asians, most Asians are okay if they integrate. Some of our party have Asian wives. Some of the men in our party have Asian wives. <laughs> <laughs> um, like, can you see me cringing? Like, yeah,
0: those men are very well integrated, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. mm,
1: they're wives, I'm sure. Um, so, yeah, like, if you, I, I'm sure if you would want to, you know, spend an afternoon with some cringe-inducing media, just Google Pauline Hanson on YouTube, and you'll you'll see the kind of thing we're talking about.
0: Um, and and so I suppose we were also we lived in a little filter bubble, so thought the Greens would do better. Oh. And I must admit, they did okay, yeah. but. They had, lots of, they had a 10% swing, but probably didn't end up getting quite so many seats as maybe people thought. And I think it's always that interesting thing because, well, seats is what gives you the actual voice in the parliament. Swing raises you more money. But, yeah, I guess maybe it's better for the next election. But, I don't know, it's always the thing with small parties. It always takes a long time.
1: Yeah, it's a hard and you one. you suddenly
0: realise how little they are voted for in comparison to other parties. And also, you know, they tend to be in metropolitan areas. And right. if you look, like, other parties got as many votes as them in different areas of the country, you know, yeah. just because we like a particular party. But I think, you
1: know, the, to, to put it in a bit of a nutshell, I think the themes that came out of this election were that, you know, there were a percentage of people that were higher than last time that felt... Disenfranchised by both the major parties and thus mm. voted elsewhere and mm. that resulted in some swings. What's the, the
0: Xenophon guy? What does he represent? Because this was an independent and I'm not really sure what he represents. Actually, I actually don't know. OK, because he got a few seats He too. did. He yeah. did
1: get a few seats, yeah. He was an independent yeah. and um, had his one-person party with um, some other people. But which, he got three seats? Well, under his name, yeah. I guess I should well, yeah. say. I actually don't know what he stands for. And, and this is the thing. I mean, you know, you can go to a polling booth and unless you've done some research... Previously, or they're running in your, election, in your electorate, you may well not know yeah. very much about people.
0: Now, um, we've talked about politics for nearly half an hour, so maybe we should move on. Definitely. Um, in, a, in a nice link, I was in Greece, and there's a link here. <laughs> there is a link here. There's a very direct link here because um, Melbourne actually has the second highest Greek population to Athens. And when I was flying from Athens to Thessaloniki, there were six Australians on the plane uh, going to see family members and things like that. So actually there is a connection there and there's a lot of Australians who go to Greece because they have Greek heritage. Mm-hmm. And actually, I, I must admit, I, thinking about that number, I find it hard to believe it because uh, Thessaloniki was 1.2 million. Let's assume the vast majority of those are Greek, so at least 800,000 Greeks. I, I, I must have been. I find it really hard to think. There's a million Greeks in Melbourne. Really?
1: I could believe it. I mean, well, I mean a Greek heritage. I say. Yeah, it's worth stressing that in the 50s, post-war, um, Australia needed a boom in of workers in particularly factories and industrial work, and therefore we had a lot of people come over from Italy and Greece. A bit like happened with Turkish people here in Germany, and that resulted in a significant Greek population.
0: Ah, oh, okay. So Melbourne has 150,000. The largest Greek population of any city in the world outside of Greece. This still doesn't add up in my mind. I don't know how you've
1: got this million number.
0: (laughs) That doesn't add up. That's not as big as Thessalonica. It doesn't make sense. I don't quite understand how that
1: works. (laughs) Not not even close. Who told you
0: that? It says it here. According to the 2001 Australian Census, Melbourne has the largest Greek-Australian population in Australia, 150,000. And the largest Greek population of any city in the world outside are outside of Greece, not second to Athens. OK, oh. that's the difference. OK, all right.
1: give me right?
0: No, that's what someone said. Oh, and Melbourne is a sister city too, Thessaloniki. So there you go. There <laughs> that goes, <laughs> that right. makes perfect sense. OK, a lot of the Greeks have actually moved out. We used to live in a very strong Greek area. A lot of them have moved out to the suburbs now. Yeah, that's um, right. And been replaced by newer uh, groups. But, Different uh, culture yeah. groups. But I was in Greece, and that is the uh, connection between Australia and Greece. There is quite quite a big one. Um, it was interesting.
1: So, tell us about Greece for people who've not been there. Give us a little bit of an overview. Chris. I will.
0: So, I was there for a conference. Um, so, I've now been to a few countries on the Balkan Peninsula. Um, I, I wasn't sure if Greek Greek I wasn't sure if Greece considered itself a Balkan country, but it, it does actually. Okay. So, um, I, I can say that. Um, and it was it was interesting. I mean, I suppose it has a far more developed tourist industry than a lot some of the Balkan countries, because it hasn't been under a dictator in recent decades. It wasn't under USSR, so it kind of has a more developed tourist industry. So prices were a little more actually pretty similar to Berlin. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, Greece is quite famous at the moment for economy being a little. Um, not in good shape, and I have some figures here actually. So we have, um, so it's actually the forty-fifth largest economy in the world, which I suppose puts it about a quarter down. There's about two hundred countries in there. Um, but uh, I think this is the big problem: a government debt of one hundred and seventy-five percent of GDP, which mm. is, is is pretty big. Twenty-five percent unemployment rate, which is not the worst, but that's still pretty high. And its growth is going down. So. In the past few years, it looks like it's been decreasing. These figures are a couple of years out of date, but um, yeah. And it was it was one of the sorts of things where, if you're just passing through as a tourist, there'd be certain things you'd notice that maybe a little bit cracks in the veneer. Um, but as I was there for a tech conference and. I mean I have to be careful here and I've said this before being in a tech conference sometimes you're hanging out with more privileged people mm. um, but then I Definitely. guess even if privileged people are telling you there's problems then I suppose there are problems um, and whilst you may not spot some of them lots of people said to be, you know they're thinking of leaving there's not enough work opportunities mm. um, it's hard to find people who are willing to take a chance on things etc etc and um yeah, things like uh, there's quite a few abandoned buildings, uh, building projects uh, pretty much delayed and taking a long time. They've been trying to build a metro lines in um, in Thessaloniki for about 13 years. Uh, some of its slowdown is also due to like, the same situation as in Rome. Every time they start digging, they find some kind of archaeological remains and have to stop and uh, analyse them. So that slows things down as well. Um but, I don't know, I mean, in comparison to other Balkan countries, it didn't seem any, any, any better or worse. But I suppose the difference being that Greece used to be a better economy, maybe. Maybe that's the difference. Whereas some of the other countries were, haven't been in more, in more recent history. Um, the conference was interesting. Actually, I'm going to come back to that. It's going to come back as a broader topic that we actually wanted to discuss. Come back to the conference. Um, I actually just want to cover a little bit of history because I like history. Uh, And if you could see where we are broadcasting from, I have a huge Roman Empire map behind us. Yes. Um, And um, one thing I picked up on which was interesting is the whole thing with the Ottoman Empire. Now, um, so one of the things I was interested in is I've always been interested in Byzantine history, which was the kind of dividing of the Eastern Roman Empire, post-Roman Empire which ended with the conquering of Constantinople, now Istanbul, uh, by the Ottomans in the 1400s. The Ottoman Empire is actually quite sizable. It's one of those sorts of ones that sometimes people seem to forget about. It lasted quite a long time, up until pretty much the First World War. And um, it's pretty big. I'm looking at a map now. I mean, a lot of the Mediterranean Basin, a lot of North Africa, a lot of even into the, the Balkan Peninsula... Um, yeah, it's, and some of Asia, uh, well, not Asia, but Asia as in, what was kind of Asia then, the the Middle East. The Middle um, East. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually, it's actually, yeah, it's actually quite surprising. And, um, for some strange reason, I'd never even really thought that some of these countries were part of it. I mean... I didn't actually really ever twig with me that Greece was part of the Ottoman Empire, and this this is two two interesting things that came out of this was this is, some of this came from when we did a city tour of some of the buildings was that um, you know for a very long time it was under Turkish influence. Mm-hmm. This meant that a lot of the Christian churches became mosques. That um, Christianity wasn't the main religion. That uh, Turkish was an official language, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and there's a lot of influence on the culture of the time. But then as soon as uh, the Greeks got uh, their independence, which I think was actually in the 1820s, something mm. like that, um, from memory, look it up, I may be wrong, um, they sort of reverted back to the, the, the old ways, in inverted commas, quite whatever that meant, because the old ways were a long time ago, uh, pretty quickly, getting Greek back as a national language, um, getting back Orthodox Christianity as the prime religion, and, you know, uh, re-embracing Greekness, I suppose. And I picked up a little bit on... In, in fact, I found a, a sign that they don't really like the Turks even now.
1: Maybe you should put this on the website. I,
0: I can't quite read it, but... So here's, here's the... Um, so this, this was a sign in the Byzantine museum I looked at. There's a few snippets here that just kind of... I mean, it could just be translations, of course. The fall of Constantinople to the Ottoman Turks in 1453 marked the final collapse of the Byzantine Empire. Subjugation! to the Turks took a heavy toll on the Greeks and the other conquered Balkan peoples in terms of tremendous demographic decline, incalculable material destruction, and four centuries of intellectual, social, and economic backwardness. I'm not actually sure if I completely agree with that. In some respects, the Turks at the time were more advanced than the West. (laughs) So, um, yeah... It, you kind of get the impression they did really like each other very much, mm. especially to begin with, and even now. I don't know, I, and I never really picked up on that. And, of course, there's the whole thing with Cyprus uh, being 50-50 split between Greece and Turkey. And I always knew that, but I never knew why. And it's all to do uh. with when the Ottoman Empire ended, and I there never even knew that. So it's funny. And, and like, uh, there was a guy from Bulgaria. Bulgaria, I'm looking at a map here, even bits of Serbia... Um, even bits of Hungary on the edges of Austria were all part of the Ottoman Empire and of course yes you had the Austro-Hungarian Empire which was the other kind of power at the time mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot of countries that I just for some reason never realised were part of the Ottoman Empire it's a very big empire that fell in not in many living memories anymore but only just outside of living memory and we, it's weird to sort of largely forget about it it's strange um, but I found that quite fascinating um, yeah. Anyway, that was that was just one thing I wanted to talk about, uh, and there was a lot of uh, ancient Greek stuff there. I also discovered there's a bit of a <laughs> I opened a bit of a hornet's nest when um, mm. because it's Macedonia, which right. is a sort of a separate country. It's a little contested, uh, as sort of after a uh, math of for the Yugoslavian former Yugoslavia.
1: So in the nineties.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. I mean, a lot of countries in that region are kind of still a bit contested. Yeah, definitely. But Macedonia is. Um, but then when I landed, the airport was called Macedonia Airport. Oh. So I said to some people, like, so is this Macedonia or not? And I opened a bit of a hornet's nest there, because it's not, but they think they are, because the main reasoning being, and this shows you how long some things sit around, and mm. this is why I like studying history, of course, we're Macedonia. Alexander the Great was born around here oh. and he was Macedonian. And it's like, you know, this is someone who was around over 2,000 years ago, but it's actually, you know, is a very big figure in history and someone to be proud of, I suppose. But it's just, it's just interesting, you know, these sorts of uh, identities and how ancient identity and old identity can still be so prevalent in mm. modern psyche. And especially, I think, in terms of, I'm conjecturing completely here, but especially in terms of, Greece, a country that is currently undergoing not the best time in its history, I suppose you look back to the time when you were great and you look back on those in, with good fond memories. Well, you look back on them when you weren't there. But, you know, you, and, and I actually heard this, that the rise of the kind of popularity of Alexander is a, has, has... This has happened before. Mm. When Greece has felt um, subjugated or in a bad way, they've often looked look back with fondness to Alexander because it was a moment when they were great. There you go. So it was interesting. Um, Anyway, let's uh, get on to the conference itself. So it was there for DroidCon, an Android event, uh, in a strange venue, a sort of science park way out of town. Um, And uh, I was at DroidCon in Berlin. It was not as big as that, maybe about 100 people, maybe. Um, But actually what I wanted to talk about specifically was not the conference really but about the, um, so we've been to a few conferences recently, we, oh. I, where often in previous years they've maybe been a small community event, largely by locals for locals. Mm. And then at some point an event decides it wants to grow, it wants to become bigger.
1: Yeah.
0: This usually means getting international speakers. That's right. Uh, unless, you know, obviously an American conference doesn't need to work so hard and, and things like that, but largely in smaller countries that's the way they do which then invariably means you have to run things in English, Mm. uh, which is a whole other discussion and quite a fascinating one, but we won't get into that right now. Um, And I sometimes wonder in some countries where English isn't as widespread as others, if this is a good thing or not, actually. I mean, it's great for people like us because we get to go to all these weird and wonderful places and experience local scene in a language that we understand perfectly. But that is half the problem. We understand it perfectly. People mm. like us understand it perfectly. So we feel quite happy and quite comfortable to get engaged. We ask questions, we talk to people, we, we prod, we poke. Yeah. Because we are in masters of our own language.
1: That's well, right. We're not
0: masters, but you know what I mean. We're more in mastery. We're more confident.
1: More confident. <laughs> more confident.
0: Well, not, more, even more, more, not even more competent, more confident.
1: Confident yeah, is the better word, is yes. It's a better word.
0: And so often we come to some of these, and we notice this in Poland, and we also notice this in Albania and in now in this conference in Greece, that often the organisers are hyper-enthusiastic. Mm. You know, they want, they're want happy to be running an international conference. Mm. They're happy to be getting people from the rest of Europe, the US, to come and speak. And
1: sponsors. And this conference did
0: have some US speakers. They had okay. um, actually an Australian who now lives in New York and works for Spotify. And they had a guy who's the head of mobile technology for Disney, which was quite cool as well. And... Um, and But often the enthusiasm of the organisers and some of the speakers is not matched by the audience. <laughs> you know, uh, anyone got any questions? Anyone got anything want to say? Anything Anyone want to do a lightning talk? etc., cetera, et cetera, And you just get a lot of silence a lot of the time. And I wonder if it's down to language. Some of it may be down to culture, but I think a lot of it's down to language and not feeling confident enough to say things. And I don't know, it's this interesting kind of situation where it's like if you want an event to grow... You have to become international, but you start to also isolate and um, uh, deny access to some people as well. Yeah, uh.
1: I have a couple of thoughts on that. I mean, firstly, I think that a lot of conferences, particularly conferences that may be their first or second time, they're not like a, an annual or a biennial that people know and you know embrace as a kind of community thing that you do every year or so. They have a lot of student tickets, and the reality of being a student is that if you're going to a conference where it's largely businesses or startups, you may well have never worked in one. Um, so your your opinions may be limited,
0: or you don't feel like you could yeah valid to have an opinion. That's right.
1: Like if you're going to a a conference that's talking about how to be an entrepreneur and you're not there yet, you know it's it's slightly not quite the same in terms of participating. The second thing I'd add with that is, um, I can give you an example, actually, of going to a wearables conference last year in Berlin, the Wear at Berlin conference, which was which was quite good, actually. There were some positives and negatives, of course. And they wanted it to all be in English. And which is not uncommon in Germany. Which, and, and
0: Germany is obviously a country that has far higher level of English spoken than Albania or Greece. But.
1: I think the thing that I noticed was that it was not always the best decision for example there was you know a speaker from the wearable textiles or the you know um, kinetic textiles area speaking from Turinga which is kind of near Leipzig which is an old GDR, Germany where there's less people that learnt English at school they are more likely as adults or as adults now to have learnt Russian for example um, we lived in Leipzig previously and the guy had the speaker had obviously had someone write out his speech in English, and he really, really struggled. And you felt like saying, "Look, just do it in German; it's fine." You know, he had slides; you could have picked up the nuances as a, you know, a basic German speaker, um, or of course contacted him for more information or other people in his company. I think there's ways to do it.
0: Yeah, and this it's like it's a complete reverse here I've actually been to German conferences largely German conferences and I've been allowed to speak in English and no one no one cared it's like Ooh. yeah you can speak in English because you can it's uh, almost the complete opposite just quickly out of interest so I have here the 2015 rankings for English as a foreign language um, uh, some are surprising uh, some are not so Germany is at 11 Greece I can't even find it's not even listed for some strange reason, I don't know That's why. Um, and neither is Albania. So <laughs> is, that either means they're off the top, no, off I the top th- 70? I find that hard I to imagine. I find very hard to do. So, <laughs> so I don't know why they're not included. Maybe they don't, yeah.
1: I'll also add a yeah. couple of things in regard to Greece. Greece. Um, but maybe a slightly different perspective. Um, no, it's
0: not even reported. The Balkan Peninsula is not even reported for some strange reason. So either. I don't know.
1: Maybe it's just not in yeah. this particular study yeah. or this index of how they rank um, English proficiency. But, um, yeah, when I went to Mobile Board Congress in Barcelona in, what was it, February this year, I did speak to um, a num- quite a few Greek startups mm. um, in the mobile area. And it being... I also hence did an article for ReadWrite, which you can have a look on the website. You can Google it, or we might put a link on um, the Squeak page. And it basically um, talks a bit about the scene, the tech scene in in Greece. And I focus particularly on a couple of different areas on um, uh, Athens and also on Thessaloniki. Is that how you say it?
0: Thessaloniki. (laughs) i'm <laughs> um, sorry
1: i've never been to greece so i don't actually know how to say there's it Saloniki, which doesn't there's sound Saloniki. right to me but that is it, yeah. and it's actually like for, for for entrepreneurial startups or people wanting to get into that whole sort of scene or that bubble or that buzz whatever you want to call it it's a credibly loud noisy scene there is multiple hubs and um, startup you know organizations and you know co-working spaces in both both cities there's a plenitude of um, meet-up groups and there's, you know, uh, business sort of chamber of commerce type organisations for people working in the areas. Um, I might also add to that that as a as a culture in Greece, they are by far an educated population. People do go to university and do very well. Uh, most of the people I spoke to had a minimum of a master's degree, if not more. And it's actually, you know, the, I think the notion of a tech scene... And this is something I was really writing about. Can the scene pull Greek out of, Greece out of its sort of economic woes? It's an interesting one because you've got educated people, you've got older people, which often are excluded from the Texan in other countries, um, who are on their second or third career, who are starting a startup, and most of them are coming with the attitude that, well, as people, we don't expect VC funding, we aren't expecting to win some prize... We are just giving it a go. We've got nothing to lose. We have no jobs. We have no future otherwise, you know, in terms of economic or career prospects. So go to hell or, you know, whatever. We're just going to give it a go. Particularly doing things like mobile. All we need is a computer and a mobile and a chair and somewhere to sit, like a garage. Um, We don't need... It's not like... Um, Other countries where they might have a hardware focus, I think, in Greece particularly, people are more likely to be doing mobile stuff, whether it's Android, iOS, as opposed to, you know, your hardware, your your high-end wearables or your autonomous cars or what have you.
0: This is actually just very quickly coming back to the language thing. I found hmm. a few statistics here or there, and not all. I'm just pulling them off Wikipedia, so I don't necessarily. Ah. So, Greece, I got um, apparently estimated about 50% proficiency, hmm. which means kind of that the 50% of the population is semi proficient.
1: Is that like presumably the younger people?
0: Well, uh, the Greek one, I'm not sure, but I'm looking at Albania and it's actually saying as of 2006, more than 65% of Albanian children could speak fluent or semi-fluent English, which is actually quite high. Mm. That's actually higher than Germany. (laughs) um, But I think a lot of it is a confidence thing. Mm. Um, And interestingly, the weird thing I found was when I was in the city, this will make you laugh, when I was in the city, I did not... Are you talking about in Greece? Yeah, everywhere I've been, I don't speak a word of Greek, so... Um, I had no choice but to be the annoying English person abroad. But and you know, if I when I'm going to conferences, I'm a little uh, maybe a little more snobbish about it because I'm being asked to go over there and speak. Um, but um, no problems, so perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. The airport? <laughs> the airport? <laughs> I oh, I that there. one. Hardly yep. anybody did, which makes no sense whatsoever. But anyway.
1: <laughs> don't you remember Shanghai? <laughs> it's a bit, was, a bit different. is a bit
0: different. I don't know. Anyway. Um, yeah. Maybe we should... Uh, this is something I want to talk about, about the whole conference thing generally. It was an interesting idea. I wouldn't mind getting some more feedback on. I might actually make the associated blog post with the... Uh, the the podcast more about that topic to get some feedback.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one. I mean, I'm tempted to maybe lead a bit of a discussion perhaps next time we speak because I'm going to a conference this week, Tech Open Air here in Berlin. And I may well not be going to all of it because I have other things to do in terms of articles to write and people to interview or transcribe interviews, so on. But I also think it's worth having a little bit of a think and a look about the value of conferences in the tech scene. Um, why mm. do we have so many conferences? What do they benefit? It
0: is, it, it, i tell you what, actually, this is something I've also wanted to cover on, more on, what makes some successful and some not.
1: Yeah, so That's I right. think that might be something we want to talk about for our next um, week. Maybe.
0: And I think we need to do a little maybe. more research for us. Yeah, <laughs> a bit of research, but yeah. also
1: maybe get some speakers in, maybe people that have organised yeah, conferences, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, get a little bit of perspective, because, I don't know, it would be very easy... Um, to go from conference to conference, or from if you're a, a new startup, competition at a conference to competition at another conference, or hackathon to hackathon, and you know it, it might be worth as a as a sort of scene having a bit of a, a think and a, a brainstorm about what the value is for this stuff.
0: Mm. A lot of it's networking. That's actually yeah. the, the But main what does that mean? Maybe we need to flesh it, that what out. What does it equal as well? And this, so I think this is another de- another argument in defence of international conferences mm. is that it attracts better networking. If sure. all you ever do, if if all a Polish startup person ever does is network with mm. other Polish right. startups, yeah. they're not they're not going to get the opportunity to meet yeah. people in, in in bigger economies and things. That's right. So if you but if you invite American speakers, etc., you get a chance to network, and that's. One other side of it. Yeah,
1: so I think we should have, perhaps have a discussion about yeah. it next time. Yeah, next well, time we meet.
0: Let's wrap up. It'll we'll probably take about twenty minutes to wrap up. But anyway, let's wrap up with oh, yeah. what else we've been up to. Um, let's try to restrict it to the past two weeks because okay. I can't even remember the last time we. Uh... So off you go.
1: Okay. Um, look, the last week or so, I've spent a lot of time with the um, Euro Cup here in um, in Europe, <laughs> which has been of course Kate's a... been
0: the uh, one person Australian team.
1: Yes, oh yes, um, which is basically a soccer, a soccer game or a football game. Um, I, think, I think people know
0: what it is. It's okay. Oh all right. <laughs> I, I never know. You know what people
1: know in other parts of the world. And look, just to give you a bit of context, like in living in Germany, soccer is quite popular. And the reason I say that is because when the international games are on, every convenience store we call them Spatie's here or Spakehouse. Late um, shop. Yeah, late shops. The um, restaurants, the little cafes and the bistros all put ta- um, chairs and tables, if they don't already have them, out the front of their, um, their their business. And they hire big screen TVs so people can go there and watch the games rather than watch them at home. And it's a really fun kind of, you know, uh, social atmosphere, even if you don't really know what's going on. It's quite fun. I quite like it. And um, so I've been writing a little bit about um, the impact of... IoT on um, on the Euro Cup and, you know, I guess, sport in general. So the first couple of articles I wrote about were about... Um, first one was about a company called Wearable Experiments in um, that were originally, I think, from London, but they're now based in um, New York. And one of their founders is a Sydney woman. I think possibly they're both from Sydney now. Um, and they basically do connected clothing so that the clothing is able to communicate outwardly with an inward physical response. For example, um, it measures, using sensor technology, excitement when um, goals are scored or when something happens in a game. And, you know, the notion of it being another way for fans to show an allegiance. And I think... Um, you know, I've been following this company for a while. I've been trying to interview them for a while too. They're um, they're a little bit slippery <laughs> as far as companies go, because um, they've done a few different kind of similar wearable
0: experiments and are slippery. This company is, um, oh, you know, <laughs>
1: um, slick maybe is the word I'm looking for. But they, um, yeah, they've done a few things. They did connected underwear, for example. That's what really got them into the scene. Where um, sensor connected underwear. Did, did,
0: did, 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 did so far, the three things you've mentioned are really. <laughs> <laughs>
1: underwear was basically done as a bit of a, um, I don't know, a shtick for um, Duracea, uh, Durex, Sorry, not Jurex which is a condom oh, company. And it basically meant that couples living apart could um, have these little remote controls and make, uh, to, to put it bluntly, make each other's underwear vibrate <laughs> without touching them. And the notion of being a kind of kinetic sensory thing and you could wake and feel you when you really couldn't. Um, because
0: that's just what... Anyway. Yeah, right maybe
1: there. you need to have a look at the article. But anyway, they've done a few things. And I think the interesting thing that that they've come across is that none of their stuff has ever actually gone to market in a big way in terms of you can buy it retail. And this is my number one frustration with wearable clothing, if we can call it that, or connected clothing. It is very hard to buy it is usually one-off pieces that sit in a museum or a gallery or go down a catwalk and you never see them again. Or they're a, you know, a prototype, the good old prototype. And so what these guys did is they went to France for the games, took their wearable clothing, did a lot of kind of opinion, um, canvassing at, at events and sports games. And it was interesting, their results, because they found firstly that the clothing was most popular between, with children and women as opposed to men, um, or older men, shall I say. And the diehard fans, which um, were largely men, like as one category of the fans, if you like, their response was very much about, well, I've already got the team jersey, so why would I want this as well? Which is an interesting one. Mm. And I think it shows some of the challenges, and I would encourage you to have a read of the article if you're interested. The challenges of why it's so hard to get wearables into shops, you know? Um, The second article I did was about the um, use of wearables by the players in the games. For example, connected... um, different parts of themselves, whether it was using... Um, what? <laughs> that came out really wrong, didn't it? Um, whether it was, you know, a sensor on their shoe, tra- or, um, uh, you know, shin pads on the front of their legs. Haircuts? That, no, uh, tempting. Some of those haircuts pretty wild. Um, you know, they could, it could um, measure, you know, the number of kicks they'd done in what angles and degrees and how far they kicked. There were bull- There's a ball you can buy from Adidas, my coach, which... Um, is a connected ball and can, you know, be used to measure all kinds of physics when you come into sports. Connected ball, eh? Can you tell I don't know much about sport?
0: <laughs> no, just uh, more um, of the, you know, connected ball, vibrating that, underwear. That, I'll
1: stop it. <laughs> the biggest one that always gathers my interest is why we don't have connect, many connected shoes. And I've written a little bit about that, so I'd encourage you to have a look. Um, the next article in the theme, there's a couple more I'm doing, which I'll only mention rather than go into, is connected stadiums. For example, the idea that you can go into a stadium, you can order food from your seat using your phone, um, you get custom advertising from little screens around the place, all sorts of stuff. Um, second one is also, hopefully, my editor will let me write this about the Robo Soccer Cup.
0: Connected balls, no, okay. <laughs>
1: there was actually a football game for robots here in Germany, in Leipzig, recently um we're robots and it's largely the out of our neon robots you probably know those sadly not pepper I'm not sure if pepper has feet no she doesn't um kicking footballs and um again i will um put the links into the podcast if the articles go to press because they're incredibly fascinating to watch these robots playing and they're very slow but it's quite fascinating <laughs> A bit like paint dry slow, but it's... That sounds um, (laughs) sounds riveting. But
0: there's
1: also, look, I have to say, uh, um, you know, there's something incredibly cute about these little robots kicking balls. It's very cute. So, yeah, it's it's
0: fun. Um, We had IoT week on SitePoint, so I also have had a bit of IoT stuff myself. (laughs) Um, I've been doing a little bit of work behind the scenes as well, some documentation for uh, a company called Deepstream, who make a kind of high-speed messaging platform, um, but also uh, working on a Swift course for another company in the States. So articles that I've written, I've edited a fair few, but I wrote um, something on a company here in Berlin called Relayer, who make a sort of IoT SDK, and they mm-hmm. released a, an Android prototyping app where you can use to just rapidly test stuff you want to, to do. Mm. So I made a prototype uh, mm-hmm. Test to see if our cat was jumping up on the door handle or not. <laughs> um, so you get to see a picture of our cat looking very disapproving. Uh, um, yes. I've also been doing some stuff with Bitbucket. Ah, um.
1: uh, good old Alassian. Yes, we went to the Alassian conference um, in Barcelona a few yes, years I'm ago. Yeah, I'm still working on asking for that. Yeah, um, yeah, it's coming, Alassian. I haven't written mine out, I'm sure <laughs> they're <listening. laughs> And uh,
0: mine is actually about a quarter done. It's taking a little bit of time, mm, but there's no yeah. particular hurry. I'm not working on anything that's time sensitive. I also uh, wrote an article on Otto for CodeChip, which is an enhancement to Vagrant, or a replacement in some ways, for Vagrant from HashiCorp. Um, and obviously so few people know about it. I then got asked if I wanted to be a technical reviewer for a book on Otto. Um, we'll see what comes of that. Um, I, f- I just suddenly realised I was in Vienna last week. I did two presentations at meetups uh, in Vienna last week. I didn't even mention that. It feels like that was ages ago. I could have talked about stuff I learnt in Vienna about their history as well. But maybe we should record the podcast again, Kate. Or maybe we should keep going. Let's go for three hours. Like <laughs> oh, the, like no. the uh, Secret Cabal, the board game podcast I like. Those guys talk for hours.
1: I'm not sure I could, I could abide by that. No I, I don't no, I like the podcast. No, I think I like it short and sweet. You me-
0: like it short. So we're currently looking at uh, about 50 minutes.
1: Okay, we have been a little bit (laughs) self-confident. And we did spend a little bit of too much time on the Australian election.
0: Yeah, I think that was.
1: (laughs) Which I should acknowledge is of no interest to most people in the world. Well, maybe now it will be. um, Maybe
0: thanks to you, it now will be. Maybe maybe there'll be some. Suddenly a whole bunch of people will take interest in four years' time.
1: (laughs) Maybe we'll just do a bit of judicious editing.
0: (laughs) There was an election.
1: There we go. There we go. (laughs)
0: All right, but we'll see you next time in, in a week. Inverted commas. Um, In fact, I think the next few weeks will be a little less uh, busy Mm. as we gear towards the August holiday in Europe where everyone goes. And I'm actually going to use the opportunity to catch up on things because uh, everyone will be on holiday.
1: Mm, Likewise.
0: So uh, maybe we'll be a bit more regular next time. But uh, for now, this is me, Christian Schiller, saying goodbye and thanks for listening.
1: And this is me, Kate Lawrence, saying goodbye and thank you for listening.